The next offenders are dismissed for class. And I think that's the first time that we had a no failure in the video. Yeah. We're going to work on getting the volume connected to the main speakers when we wire the stage in our next uh, improvement project. So be praying for that. Oh man, bummer. My little Bible thing is not around. <laughs> my bar stool that holds up my Bible. <laughs> oh, my wife's going to fix me too because I can't dress myself. Hey man, I'm, we all got to grow. <laughs> How's everybody doing today? Are we doing good? We feeling good? Thank you. Thank you, TJ. Appreciate that. Okay. All right. One thing we're going to do, too, is we're going to check this, make sure this mic's hot when TJ gets back. Um, I just want to make sure that it's hot, and then uh, we'll mute it until we have scripture readers. But instead of people standing up out there now, when I call on you to read and you know your passage, you're going to come on up here and read from the microphone because everyone will be able to hear you better, A, and it will be recorded for the YouTube audience, B, and then eventually I'm going to get used to the process because this is new of putting the passages that will be read on a slide for those of you who are in the audience so that you can turn. But if I didn't do that today and if I don't do that in the future and you want to know the passage, just say, hey, where are they reading from until I develop the discipline? Check, check. We're good here? I know. I want to. Well, okay, okay. So you can mute it until we got people coming up. All right, so yeah, new things are happening, right? We had a three-minute break for the first time, and the whole goal of that is to build community. You know, if you're a next offender, you can run downstairs, you can top off your coffee. If you've got a kid, you can take them to the bathroom. But the most important point of that whole thing, like Jenna said, is so that we can stand up and we can identify somebody that we haven't yet talked to. We can go to them and we can talk to them and we can begin a conversation Inevitably, the conversation is going to be interrupted by me because I'm going to tell you the three-minute break's over. We're going to play the video, but guess what? You can pick that conversation back up with that person that you just met at the end when we put the donuts and the coffee out, and you can continue that conversation and build relationship. The whole point of the three-minute break is to strengthen the community here, and it's not about you just coming here and hearing from me. Some of the most powerful things that you will hear on a Sunday morning is going to come from the person that you're sitting next to. God is going to give them, through the Spirit of God, a word of wisdom for you based on their experience that week, and they're going to speak life into you. Already this morning, two Spirit-filled believers prayed that God would heal me of a previous injury that I've had, and they prayed that God would take me deeper in the transformative work that He's doing in my heart and my mind. And we haven't even, we're not halfway through the service yet. So if that's my experience, I'm excited for what your experience will be. Amen? Amen? All right, so we have been working our way through the letter of 1 Peter, and we are in the last chapter. Now, 1 Peter is an encyclical letter. Well, what does that mean? That means that Peter wrote one letter, but he most likely dictated it to a scribe named Silvanus. Silvanus made copies, other scribes made copies, and they sent it out to five Roman provinces. So what does that mean? That means that it went to a multiplicity of churches. Not just one church body, not just one body of local believers, but the church plural. 
The church universal is a great way to describe that. Peter was writing to God's flock of sheep. And the whole goal that Peter had in mind was to encourage them. They were being persecuted. They were suffering harm. It wasn't governmental harm. It wasn't like the government was persecuting them. The, it, things hadn't progressed that far. It was local persecution. It was peer persecution. Families were persecuting family members who had given their lives to Christ. Neighborhoods and communities were looking down on people who had given their life to Christ and were attempting to change because they were deviating from the normal societal structures. It's almost no different than what we're experiencing today. Almost no different. Now Peter writes to encourage the church. Now coming off of the heels of last week's sermon, Peter dealt with the reality that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. And he said that the judgment of God will begin with the household of God. We cited Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 6 and a passage from Malachi to talk about that reality, that the judgment of God begins with the house of God. That means that God judges his people first before judging those who are in rebellion to him. It's interesting that Peter wrote that, and we studied that last week, because today Peter's going to speak to the elders. So there's our textual connection. Why are we, is Peter going to be writing to the elders today? Well, he's going to be writing to the elders because he just finished telling the church that God's judgment starts with them. And who's in charge of the church? Well, they're led by the elders who are in submission to Christ. And eldership is an appointed office. We don't select ourselves to become elders. The community selects the elders. So coming off the tales of reminding the church that God's judgment will begin with them, Peter now is getting ready to address the elders. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's turn our attention to the text, and let's read from 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be tackling the first five verses in chapter 5. We're reading from the ESV this morning. Peter begins in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter begins this portion of the letter with a word of exhortation. Exhortation can be encouragement. Sometimes words of encouragement come across kind of rough, don't they? Someone who loves you wants to encourage you. You know, like my wife about a year ago, you need to get your off the couch and go to the gym. <laughs> That's what she said to me. Because <laughs> she loves me. And if I don't keep the body that God has given me healthy, then we can expect that my life with her, short of any tragedy, will be reduced in its longevity because I'm not taking care of the body that God has given me. 
So she gave me a loving word of encouragement, but it came across rather harsh in the moment. You know? Yeah, poor me. <laughs> There's the bus, and I just threw Callan. <laughs> but here's the deal. See, Peter is giving a word of exhortation to a group of people that he loves, but his word of exhortation is different because it's gentle. It's gentle in its approach. And it's not that my wife wasn't being gentle. She had tried to be gentle, and I was resistant. And she said, I've had enough. Let's get real. Now, Peter's not at that point yet. This is a gentle word of exhortation that he has strategically aimed at three specific groups of people. First and foremost, he addresses those tasked with overseeing the church. These are those who occupy the office of elder. And as we just discussed in our introduction this morning, elders are not self-appointed. They are appointed by the community for the good of the community. Next, he addresses those who are younger. And lastly, Peter speaks to everyone within the Christian community. In these five verses, he tackles all of that. And as you can see, we've outlined our observations with the sole purpose of asking what is Peter's focus? We look at this outline and we say, okay, does Peter have a strategy? Has he so ordered this portion of the text in this way to communicate a certain point? Because that's what we're after this morning. The mind of the author. So we've outlined it and we're modern students separated from the text by great distance. So a modern perspective might be to claim that the focus is on the organizational structure of the church. You know, in modernity, we are so consumed with organizational structure. Order! And then we sidestep that thing and we go, God is a God of order, not of chaos. So organizational structure is so important. And then the church responds with, well, what? type of organizational structure because if we take a step back and we look at the church universal there's multiple ways that the church is governed in many different areas by many different groups of people so as modern students we're asking the question is peter's focus on the organizational structure of the church now in their book the new testament in its world Michael Byrd and N.T. Wright argue that Peter places an emphasis on the ethos over the organization. That's a bold claim. Peter places an emphasis on the ethos over the organization. So what's the answer? Is it hierarchy? Or is it the character and the nature of all of those who play an active role in the fellowship of the saints? What's Peter addressing here, church? And some of us may be sitting in our seats thinking, well, Matt, hold on, push pause. Couldn't it be both? Well, maybe. I'm not saying that it isn't both. But if it is both, we have to bring it back to the question, does Peter place a priority on one or the other? Is Peter concerned with the structure in the organization? Or is Peter concerned with how people are living their lives? That's the question. And these questions that we're asking, they need answers, right? Challenge everything, question everything. Why? Because challenges and questions demand answers. 
So it's my hope that by the end of our Bible study this morning, we're going to be able to make an informed decision offering an answer. Some of us will answer different than others, and that's a great thing. Why? Because the sermons here are designed not to give us the answer. The sermons here are designed to teach us how to ask questions so that we can dialogue about our questions and how we would answer them following the service with one another. Because I don't have the truth cornered. (laughs) And you guys will have a different perspective than me. And that is welcomed in this body so that we can talk about it, so that we can learn, and so that we can grow alongside one another. Amen? Amen. So whatever side of the fence you fall on, just know how to defend your understanding where to go in the text to find the grounds to defend your understanding, and then share that from a foundation of love with grace and mercy, and be patient with the person who may see it different than you, okay? All right. That's how we do things around here. So with that in mind, can you guys read this for me, please? Now, Dr. Craig Keener praises Peter's ability to exercise gentleness. And I already talked about how this was a gentle approach to a word of encouragement from the apostle to the church writ large. But Keener praises him because he's gentle in and throughout his letter. And he highlights the reality that the apostle has already twice in the letter referred to the church universal as his beloved. The church. Peter refers to the church as his beloved. Like a father to a loving child, he sees someone in need of support, someone in need of encouragement, and he refers to them as his beloved. Not only does he graciously and and gently pursue the church with his language, but we see that he decides to willingly identify himself as a fellow elder and as one of the many who will participate in the glory that is yet to be revealed. If there was ever a time for Peter to flex his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, it would be here as he's dealing with the elders in the church universal. Yo, I'm speaking to people in authority, so I better make sure they know who I am. (laughs) Jesus chose me. If the Gospels were in circulation, they would know that I'm the chief among equals. They would know that I speak first and that I take action first. I'm Peter, Cephas, the rock. (laughs) That's me. I'm the one who stood up for the Gentiles at the Jerusalem Council and said that the Jews shouldn't put burdens on the Gentiles that we ourselves couldn't carry. That's who I am. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Does Peter do that? Man, I wish the apostles in the modern church would take a cue from Peter. Amen? Amen. Amen. A little bit of humility goes a long way. Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder. As one of the many who will participate in the glory that is yet to come. He decides that he will take seriously the reality that he is 
one of many who have been blessed to share in the responsibility of extending pastoral care to those in need. Peter seeks to identify himself with the people of Christ. This is drastically different than one who seeks to lord their authority over them. When we look at the text, we can see that Peter is seeking solidarity with the body. That's an important thing for us to identify. If the apostle who worked with Jesus for three years of his life, who was seen as the chief among equals in his own peer group, if the apostle who spoke at Pentecost, if the apostle who helped to select the deacons so that the rest of the group could preach and pray, Saul to identify himself with the church universal, then we, who have any sort of authority in the body, should seek to do the very same thing, not lord it over those in our charge. Now, if this is the case, one may desire to challenge Peter. You know, if Peter's going to exercise humility, you know, you say you give him an inch, they'll take a mile. We talk about the text being written to them but for us. So imagine if Peter is exercising humility in his letter, seeking solidarity with the church, that those in the churches that are distant from his location, they may have a desire to rebel or to reject or to question his authority. Well, if the Bible was written to them but it's for us, all we have to do is take a step back and look out at society today and say, you know what? Even the church today is questioning Peter's authority. Is Peter right? Did he really write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What does that even mean? Everybody just wants to question everything. And I don't think Peter would have a problem with them questioning. It's challenging inappropriately. Not recognizing someone for who they are and for what God has called them to do. What He's empowered them to accomplish. But rejecting that thing for their own good. More interested in my power and my authority. Not submitting to the one who should be equipping me. What happens when we blanket that type of mentality onto the Master? Nothing good's going to happen. Now, if this is the case, you know, we're asking the question, should we embrace the words of exhortation that Peter gave to the church then, now? And I would say, absolutely. And in the midst of the challenge, Peter could once again simply respond, you have to submit to my instruction because I'm an apostle. But he doesn't do that. Look at this middle phrase, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. It's for this reason, Peter says, that my instructions should be both considered and embraced. Peter's not saying just blindly embrace everything I say. He's saying consider everything that I've written in the letter. And once you've considered it, and the Spirit confirms it, embrace it. Peter was a student of the Master, was he not? Peter's life was directly affected by the ministry of Christ. Was it not? He gave up everything to follow the Master. Remember the words of Jesus. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man 
Where was Peter? He was with the Son of Man. He gave up everything. Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Post-ascension in the midst of ongoing persecution from the Sanhedrin who beat him to Herod who imprisoned him and beheaded James, Peter decided, I'm going to remain faithful. In the midst of persecution, I'm going to remain faithful. Faithful to the message and faithful to the bride. And we know that to be true because the letter is evidence of that very faith. Now, New Testament scholar Karen Jobes observes that Peter's intentions are to motivate a type of church leadership that continues the witness of the apostles. Raise your hand if you want a type of church leadership that rejects the witness of the apostles. Just taking a survey here. Nobody, right? I mean, what are we here for if we're not here for the historical elements that are partnered with the inspired word of God? Because they don't, con- they don't contradict. They complement. Right? So I would agree with Karen Jobes in her, ass- in her assessment that Peter's intentions are to motivate a type of church leadership that continues the witness of the apostles. She goes on to say this is a kind of witness whose testimony is to the truth and the truth is grounded on eyewitness experience. This sounds very much like Luke's gospel. I took it upon myself to do what? to interview eyewitnesses, to record their testimony. So what? So that we could know with certainty what it was that Christ accomplished in his life and in his ministry. She says that Peter witnessed the tide of popular support turn against Jesus. The tide of popular support. Remember when he said, if you want to follow me, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood? And a ton of the disciples were like, uh, that's a hard teaching. I'm out. So it wasn't just the people. It was the leadership. Right? Peter saw how Jesus' ministry alienated him from his earthly family. Do we remember in the Gospels? Jesus said, my mother and my brothers, who are they? I tell you, my mother and my brothers are those who are seated here with me right now following in the footsteps of the Master. Peter witnessed the Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus, and Peter was aware of their desires to kill him. It's Peter's eyewitness testimony that gave us the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Mark records the reality that the leaders were out to get Jesus. So Peter was aware of it. Peter was present at Passover, Remember that night? The night that they all went out to the Garden of Gethsemane? The night that Jesus told Peter, James, and John to come a little bit further than the rest? Peter was present to witness Jesus in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not only that, Peter witnessed Judas' betrayal of the Master. Peter was there for the arrest and he was far from silent. Cut the ear of that man off, right? Following the arrest, Peter followed Jesus and he stood outside. Why? Because he wasn't allowed inside. 
John was, but Peter was not. So while Peter warmed himself by the fire, Jesus experienced what we would describe as a mock trial with false witnesses and false accusations brought against him. And as he was questioned before the high priest, that was the very event that led to the securing of his crucifixion, was it not? What more should we ask him? We've all heard he has blasphemed. Right? When you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, quoting Daniel, Aha! What more testimony do we need? Kill this man. Peter was outside for that. Peter says it's for these reasons, church. It's for these reasons and others, because I'm a fellow elder and a partaker in the glory that is about to be revealed. It's for these reasons that you can trust me. It's not because I'm special. God shows no partiality. Peter's aware of that. Peter's not arguing that he's special. He's actually arguing that I'm one of you. Just another sinner saved by grace. I'm one who's been changed and one who God is still changing. Amen? That's the testimony of Peter right there. Just as Christ asked him to feed and tend his flock by the Sea of Tiberias, so now Peter was asking the church elders to do the very same thing. And he was asking them not just to do it, but he was asking them, are you willing to do it? If so, elders in the church, if you are willing to shepherd the flock, I believe that this is how God would intend we exercise our leadership. Can you guys read this for me, please? In verse 2 through 3, what I just had you guys read, it appears to me, and I don't know about you, but it appears to me that Peter is explaining the tasks that have been assigned to those who hold the office of elder. These are your tasks. They're to shepherd the flock of God. This responsibility requires exercising oversight. If you are shepherding the flock of God, who do you think you are answering to, ultimately? God himself. This is probably why James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Because there is a recognition of the fear that is associated with shepherding the flock. Not only do wolves come from within and from outside, and not only is it the shepherd's job to protect the sheep from the wolves that rise up from the inside and come from the outside, which means they have to be willing to lay their physical lives down, but they have to spend hours upon hours making sure that they're well-fed, watered, that the flies aren't infesting their nostrils, that when they wander, their legs are broken, and then they're carried until they heal so they learn not to wander. The life of a shepherd is difficult, in the ancient Near East. Which is why this metaphor is so clear to those that Peter is writing to. Now Alan Stibbs offers us a sober reminder. He says, humanly speaking, we have to affirm that we are only under shepherds. 
Ultimately, the flock belongs to God. Our authority is temporary, which is why it's so important for Peter to bring clarity to the roles and the responsibilities of who? Of the elders. How does Peter accomplish bringing clarity? He uses a negative positive contrast. This is one of Peter's favorite things. We've talked about this in the letter, and he does this all the time. He highlights and front loads the negative, and then he follows it with the positive. This is one of Peter's favorite tools. So he's bringing clarity to the roles and the responsibilities of the elders, and he's doing it through this negative positive contrast. For those of you who have been appointed to shepherd the flock, for those of you whose communities have recognized the gifts of God that have been put in you, the spiritual maturity and the fruit that identifies good trees, when you exercise oversight, don't exercise your oversight from compulsion. Do it willingly. When you find yourself in an authoritative position, church leaders, don't do it for shameful gain. It's not about the monetary value that's attached to what comes with being a church leader. And it's not attached to status in the community either. Don't do it for shameful gain. Do it eagerly. What does it mean to do it eagerly? It means to put the good of the other before your own at great cost to yourself. That's the shepherd metaphor. When you exercise oversight, make sure you're not totalitarian in your exercising of it. Rather, be an example in word and deed because it requires both. We're going to watch your lives, elders. And if you disqualify yourself before you try to exercise authority over us, we're going to disqualify you because that's how the body keeps itself healthy. Checks and balances, amen? Peter's putting it all on display right here for us. To be an elder, <laughs> it's a scary thing. Yeah, he knew the cost. That's right. That's right. He's not asking them to do anything. Leslie's identifying something very important. Peter's not asking them to do anything that he himself has not or will not do. Amen? And hasn't been asked by the Lord. That's right. Feed. Tend. Yeah. Yeah. And he was told, be a witness. Be a witness. He's an eyewitness. If we go back to the next slide, we don't have to. But if we do, he's a witness. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It comes with a responsibility. As Christians, we don't get to kick our feet up, hit the cruise control and say, God's got this. That's not how he sovereignly decided to build his kingdom. He wants people who are going to co-labor with him. Does he need us? No. But because he decided that he would use us, we have a responsibility. And we better do well with what we've been given. Peter says, do it not that way, but rather do it this way. Now before we move on, I want us to talk briefly about some of Peter's terminology. Now what does it mean to exercise oversight willingly. What does it mean to exercise oversight willingly? And let's just pause here for a second. 
We're not talking about soteriology here. We're talking about someone who has been saved and someone who is writing to the saved. So when we're talking about what does it mean to do something willingly, we don't need to get our panties in a twist over free will or not, okay? Let's just talk seriously for a second about the reality of what we're addressing here. Peter's talking to the elders, and his verbiage is willingly, not under compulsion. So we have to ask the question, what's he talking about, right? And that's a good question, because this is not a soteriological question. It's a practical question. How do we function in leadership over the body? This is something that happens every single day with people who have been given authority by the community to exercise authority over the community for the good of the community in line with the Word of God led by the Spirit of God for the Kingdom of God. Amen? Have we been set free? Have we been gifted? Do we have knowledge of His Word that we hide in our hearts? Then we may be able to serve willingly. Just maybe. The first thing that we need to recognize as modern students is that in antiquity, voluntary action was deemed superior to involuntary or forced coercion. Now, Joel Green asserts that Peter's first example in verse 2 directs the elders to act in conformity with God's own exercise of leadership. So he's saying, I want you to exercise your leadership in a way that is consistent with the character and the nature of God. That's what he's saying. One may ask, was God ever obligated to act? (laughs) The answer is no. He's God. He's not obligated to do anything that he doesn't want to do. He sits in the heavens. He does as he pleases. That's what it means to be God. He's not in obligation to do anything to anyone. He does things because he desires to do things. And it just so happens, praise God, he's a benevolent God. So was God ever obligated to act? The answer is no. He willingly chose to act on our behalf. Therefore, the elders should serve in the very same fashion. They are to act willingly, voluntarily. Why? Because that's consistent with the character and the nature of God. I don't know. Is it too much to ask? That's a great question. Is it too much to ask? I think that we would need to be ready as God is ready to exercise grace when there's failures. Amen? Mercy when there's failures. Amen? Patience when there's repeat failures. Amen? Forgiveness. Seven times seven times seven times seven times seven. Amen? All of this can be exercised right out of the Word of God. We're not standing on our opinions. That's a great question, Tom. How do we think about this? That sounds like a really high standard. We serve a great God who gives great spiritual gifts to His great people. Amen? So I think that we can walk in the Spirit We can keep in step with the Spirit, and we can display the fruit of the Spirit by the Spirit, which is why the Spirit is the most important component in the equation here. Now, Peter Davids writes that willing service is a direct reflection of what it means to act in a godly manner, a godly manner as God would have you. It's a good word. 
He who desires the seat of an overseer, Paul says, desires a good thing. That's the words of Paul. I think Peter brings tension to that and says, yeah, it's a good thing to desire it. Recognize who you are an under-shepherd under and be ready to walk worthy of the call that God has placed on your life. Amen? We need to be ready to step into a deeper understanding of what God is asking of us before we even desire something. I was, in, I was hanging out with Nathan this week, and we were having the conversation, and we both said, man, I don't know how I would respond if the church asked me to be an elder. <laughs> That's a tall order. Was it Tuesday? It was Thursday. Thursday. I hadn't even started writing yet, and I was like, man, what a good gift from a good father. Like, the, God, the Godhead, through the power of the Spirit, is confirming what I'm going to have to teach in the community right here in this body. It's important that you guys are here. It's important that we're talking to one another because God wants to do that. Lord, am I saying the right thing? Am I going in the right direction? He's like, well, what did I just show you on Thursday? <laughs> oh, yeah, we had that conversation. And we should not be weary about stepping into this role, but we should not consider it lightly either. We should take very serious what God is asking us to do. And that's in every capacity of our lives. Now, I already touched briefly on the second uh, statement uh, addressing shameful gain. So let's look at verse 3. What does Peter mean when he instructs the elders to avoid domineering behavior? This is a good one for me. Because I'm a domineering person. Like, I know how to get things done by being intimidating. I just do. Like, if you're going to stand in my way and you're going to create some sort of obstacle, I learned through my experience running in the streets and then I topped that experience off in the military on how to use intimidation to get the job done. Doesn't make it right. So this is a good word for me. <laughs> Avoid domineering behavior. To properly answer this question, I want us to look at two of Jesus' teachings. So I'm going to need two volunteers to read. I need somebody to read Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 37. Who would like to do that? Tom? Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 37. You're going to come up and read here first at this microphone. I need somebody to read Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. Who wants to read that one? Art's going to read that one. Jenna, were you going to raise your hand? Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we'll have Tom and Art come up. Daniel, you saved those fingers for the piano. I'm telling you, you were killing it today, bro. That was, give them a round of applause. That was so good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're going to read into that, that microphone. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 37. Art, when, can you come up here? Because as soon as he's done, I'm going to have you read in the same mic microphone. If you're flipping in your Bibles, I'm going to give it to you one more time. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 37. Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. Tom. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer, because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve disciples over to him, and said, 
whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on behalf, on my behalf, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. Thank you, Tom. Before Art reads, did we catch that? If you want to be the greatest, what's the prerequisite according to the teachings of the master? Become the what? The least. To be a servant of all, right? Okay, Art. So this is uh, when James and John <clears throat> asked Jesus if they could uh, sit one at the right hand and one at the left. And then the other disciples were grumbling. Um, they were indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Art. Mark Strauss says that that passage in Mark is the hinge on which Mark's gospel rests. That Jesus came not to be served, but to be the servant to all. And it's interesting, uh, Art, do you still have it up? Yep. He says, let it not be so among you. Is that what it says? But it shall not be so among you. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the way the Gentiles rule. Remember, Gentiles, we say, I say, is a bad translation. <laughs> right? The word is ethnos in the Greek. And it should be translated pagan nations because it's translating the type of leadership that is exercised in nations that are not submitted to God's will and God's word. And then he gives the example of how they lord their authority over those in their care. Raise your hand if you got a boss who's just a real piece of work. Yeah. Yeah, and it's tough, right? Life is tough. Does anybody spend time in their own off time when they're in isolation just praying that God would change the type of leadership that they have to submit to because life is so difficult whether it be at home or in the workplace it's tough right when someone is domineering and jesus i mean according to what jesus just said he says don't be like that i mean think back to our our, our sermon in proverbs and i'm going to reference this in in the in the coming minutes but think back to our sermon two weeks ago in the proverbs I said, I hear people so often say, why won't they just listen to me? And the first question I want to ask them is, why should they? The, the, the default answer is, because I'm their father, because I'm their mother, because I'm their boss. What? Really doesn't matter if your lifestyle isn't worth replicating. Because <laughs> a good leader leads by example. They do a lot less of this and they do a lot more of this. Right? Nobody cares what you have to say until they know that you care. We said that's a modern proverb that we embrace. Because life is very difficult under the domineering. And Jesus says to the disciples before the church is even birthed, 
let it not be so among you. Are we the church or, or what? All right. So how about we blanket that statement on us? Let it not be so among us. Now based on what we just heard Tom and, and Art read, I think it's safe to say that Jesus assumes that tyrannical attitudes and leadership are something that stand in opposition to the kingdom. That's a tough like rebuke for me, who is a person who uses a domineering attitude to get the job done, to stand here and to study this and to hear these things and to read these things out and say, ha! Something's got to change. I want everything else to change and God is saying, I'm the one that needs to change. <laughs> That's a hard word. It's no wonder that the tides of favor turned against Jesus, huh? He doesn't say, follow me, it's going to be easy. Well, yeah, he did, Matt. He said, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Yeah, you translate that to the ox who was wearing the yoke and carried the burden and plowed the field every day. You know what Jesus said? Don't look back. Is it easy to be a Christian? In hindsight, it will have been easy when we are in eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. But life right now is difficult. And for those who choose to follow God, it will be exponentially more difficult. He sent the Spirit as the comforter. He sent the Spirit as the advocate. And he, we know that we have a reward that transcends any of the suffering that we will experience in this life. Therefore, philosophically and theologically, we can argue that the burden is easy and the yoke is light. But we can talk practically about what it looks like in this life right now. And life is difficult. I'm telling you it's difficult. I'm standing here as a domineering individual who says, I don't like this teaching. I just ripped this page out of my Bible maybe. <laughs> and then just make my wife do all the things that I want done my way, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, Tom is saying that that's just what people who deconstruct do. I don't like this verse, gone. I don't like that verse, gone. We're experiencing it. It's coming to life. It's unfolding right before our very eyes in current modernity. Jesus sees tyrannical attitudes and leadership as something that stands in opposition to the kingdom. We should take that very seriously. As a matter of fact, we should understand that shepherding the flock of God requires an elder to willingly embrace the work of leading and feeding, caring and sharing, protecting and directing. Let me say that again. Leading and feeding, caring and sharing, protecting and directing. All six of these adjectives are the antithesis to a domineering attitude. Leading and feeding, caring and sharing, protecting and directing. When these six adjectives, uh, adjectives are rightly applied, they lay the foundation for exemplary leadership in God's economy. Amen. And God's economy is very different from our economy. But we should be living in God's economy because we're sojourners in this world and this is not our home. Absolutely. Amen? Now I love how William Barclay views this passage. He writes that for Peter, the reward of love gave birth to his role as a shepherd. I heard that and I was like, wait a second. 
the reward for love gave birth to Peter's role as a shepherd. And then it clicked. And Leslie mentioned it. What did Jesus ask him? Do you love me? Then he asked him again, do you love me? And then he asked him a third time, do you love me? So William Barclay says that the reward of love gave birth to Peter's role as a shepherd. How did Jesus answer Peter when he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed and tend my sheep. There's the shepherding metaphor. The instructions of the master to Peter are no different than the instructions of the apostle to the church. Shepherd the flock of God. As disciples, we are to be servants, as per Mark's gospel, not bosses. As disciples, we are to be ministers, not executives, as per Mark's gospel. A good shepherd leads from the front. How do we know this? Because the sheep hear his voice, and what do they do? They follow him. The good shepherd stands out front. The good shepherd sets the example. In word and in deed. The good shepherd puts the needs of the others before his own at great cost to himself. Anybody know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about Jesus. You know what Peter said earlier in this letter? Follow in his steps. You know what that translates in the Greek? Place the paper over the, the writing tool and trace the letters. Learn to copy the lifestyle of the master. That's what Peter was talking about. The reward of love gave birth to Peter's role as a shepherd. The reward of love will give our, will give birth to our role as shepherds as well. We cannot lead if we cannot love like the master. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Is anybody longing for the day when the chief shepherd will appear? Not because we want to escape this world, but because we long to experience the rewards that will be coming to us from the creator of the universe. What does uh, Paul say, Art? Do we love, do we love his appearing? It's a very interesting phrase. Do we love the appearing of the master? Sobering. Especially when we consider what we do in our free time. Do we love the appearing of the master? You know, Peter opened this portion of the letter with the expectation that he himself would participate in the coming glory. Verse 1. A fellow partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And now he extends that same hope to his loved ones. Saints, are we aware that when Jesus returns, he will honor the faithful and shame the rebellious? The graphic imagery of a crown mirrored the cultural practice of bestowing honor on citizens for distinguished public service. 
It was also customary in the first century to crown victorious athletes. So this would be a very real thing for them. It's not so much a very real thing for us. Maybe if it were a very real thing for us, it would be like the certificate or the ribbon, right? Because we don't really put crowns on one another anymore. Service medals, distinguished, honorable service medals, right? Think about people in the military who wear them on their chest. Like, it's very, very real when we put it in our language, and that's what Peter's doing here. He's trying to give graphic illustration to a reality that they're familiar with. Peter makes one major distinction, though. The honor given by the chief shepherd is a crown that will never fade. All of the awards, all of the accolades that we've earned in this life mean nothing in comparison. That's not a marginalizing. It's a putting it in proper perspective. We should be proud of the things that we have earned in this life. But we should simultaneously recognize that they pale in comparison to that which God will give us before we enter into eternal rest. Amen? Unfading. Craig Keener writes that our reward offers a sharp contrast to the flower of the field that falls and the grass that withers. Do we remember that from chapter 1, the quotation from Isaiah? The flower of the field will fade and the grass will wither, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now we have a crown. Now we have a crown that's unfading. Oh, kind of like the inheritance that is imperishable. Peter is not drawing on anything new here. He's sparking their imagination. He's calling to memory things that he's already written in the letter. This is why we need to read the letter in repetition over and over and over and be familiar with it so that when we read these things, we can recall all of the beautiful truths. An unfading crown of glory. The Word of God which stands eternal. Those of us who are born from it will also endure forever alongside of the Creator who has existed eternally. There is no better news in all of the world that can be given to a body of believers who is experiencing persecution. Can you imagine what this would do for a church that was suffering? They're going to crown the gladiator that's going to destroy you as the victor in the Colosseum. But guess what God's going to do? God's going to judge that gladiator one day and in front of that gladiator who took your life, He's going to crown you and He's going to shame him. What's more important? The temporal or the eternal? That's what Peter's saying right here. Very, very real graphic imagery. You're going to stand and they're going to release lions. Don't cower. Don't run. Take a knee and pray for those that are releasing the lions that they would ask for forgiveness because if they do not ask for forgiveness, the crown that they receive for releasing the giants will fade today. But God will crown you in their presence and then destroy them and their soul in hell. You want some encouragement when you're being persecuted? Know that you serve the creator and the sustainer of life. The one who can give and who can extinguish. That's what Peter's doing here. 
He's offering a stern word of encouragement to the church. He's saying, reconfirm your zero. Get your sights right. Understand that what God will do for you can transcend anything that humanity can do for humanity. Amen, Lord. If that's the case, have your way. Whether I like it or not, let's roll, baby. <laughs> let's get it done. Because it's going to take probably seconds for me to bleed out and die. And then I'll never fear, cry, or experience pain ever again. I'll be in a new body with a new name in your presence forever. I'll be made like you because I'm going to see you like you are. Let's go. Is that what we hold here? We need to know it. That's our future, church. And when that is our foundation, whatever storm may come, Jesus would say that house will stand. I don't know about you, but that motivates me. Come whatever may. I, and it's my prayer that we, will willingly make the journey for whatever lies at the end is most assuredly worth it. It is most assuredly worth it. Can you guys read this last slide for me, please? I hear somebody chuckling. They're like, yeah. Yeah, remind, remind them whoopersnappers. <laughs> Tell them young people, submit! <laughs> ah. This language, this language is very reminiscent of the household code. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. It's very, 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 very reminiscent of the household code. Peter's not just talking to the wives, though. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the equal. Ooh. Husbands don't like to memorize that part. <laughs> They're always like, Matt, she doesn't submit to me. I'm like, well, you're probably not worth following, bro. If you quit being a loser and quit trying to force people to follow you, then maybe if you stop looking behind you and screaming at them to get in step and you just actually lead well, by the time you're done leading well and you look behind you, they'll be following you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, Tom says that's just like the children that he teaches every day. This is a universal principle. Now, let's not get it twisted here. The youth must submit themselves to the leadership of the elders. So if you're in here and you are of the youth, I'm speaking to you. I can see you guys sitting here. Anybody else in the back? I can see you back there. Rob, I'm right there with you, man. I'm in, mentally, I'm in that. I'm in that space. <laughs> You know, my wife would say, not just mentally, your maturity levels in that space too. <laughs> but here's the deal. Like, what does it mean when we say you have to, you must submit to the elders, right? What does that mean when we look at you and we say, the expectation, the standard 
is that you would submit. What, the greatest question you can ask is, what does that mean? Tell me what that means. You got a question? That's good. That's good. Keating said that it starts with respect. And from respect, you'll be able to follow the, the word of the elders. Is that, did I hear you correctly? Yeah. Now, I want to remind the youth in the house, you need to hear this, right? Submission is not blind obedience. So when we say that you must submit to the elders, we're not saying you have to follow us blindly. Submission is not blind allegiance. So when we say that you must submit, we're not saying that you have to follow us blindly. How do we define submission around here, church? Stand up and say it real loud for everybody to hear, Art. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Responsibly occupying our role in society, our function in society, without compromising our position in Christ. So when we look at the youth and we say that the expectation, that the standards that you submit, you can say, okay, for me to submit, they mean that I need to responsibly occupy my place in society as a youth. Okay? What does that look like? To be responsible in my function as a youth. What does that look like? Well, whatever that looks like in whatever family dynamic you have, in whatever school you attend, in whatever college you're going to, what that looks like, you know what that looks like. Meet the standard. And the only reason you have to not obey and to not submit is if we ask you to compromise your position in Christ. If we're not asking you to sin, then you have no reason not to follow. So it goes back to the previous passage. Are we domineering? Are we doing it for shameful gain? Are we doing it because we're compulsed to do it? No. We're doing it willingly. We're doing it eagerly. And we're leading by example. Therefore, we can say that the, the responsibility falls back on the elders if we're going to be successful in bringing this into reality. What kind of example are we setting? Do our lives tell a story? And is that story lead others to replicate our story in their own lives? That's what I want to know. That's what we should want to know. Are we leading well? Are we leading as Peter is saying the elders should lead the church? Because as the elders lead the church, the fathers should lead their homes. As the elders lead the church, the wives should lead their homes. Co-equals, co-heirs in Christ, occupying different roles in different ways for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Youth, if a leader offers you counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or violates the gospel, then you should not follow that leader. You shouldn't. 
And if you're going to get in trouble at home because you think that your parents are trying to make you sin, you better think very seriously about how you're going to challenge that. Because there will be consequences to how you step out and defy authority. There will be. I grew up in a very heavy-handed home. Very strict home. Very orderly home with high expectations. So I know what happens when you challenge the status quo. So remember, if you're not going to obey two options... If leaders offer you counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or asks you to violate the gospel, then don't do it. Anything else must be done. If the expectation is for the youth to submit, then by that definition, we must lead well. We need to make obedience easy. We need to make obedience easy. And to lead well... That requires humility. And humility is a tough pill to swallow. Once again, Peter shifts his focus. He spoke to the elders. He addressed the youth. Now he's going to talk to the whole church. Now he's talking to everybody in the room. So if you're like, well, I don't really fall into the category of the youth, and I don't plan on ever being an elder, this message doesn't apply to me, shucks. Peter just pulled you in. In verse 5, Peter uses odd language. He writes, clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. This is very, very strange terminology. Clothe yourselves with humility. What does Peter mean by this? Well, to properly answer this question, we need to get into the mind of the author. It's my opinion that once again, Peter is reaching back into his own life's experience as he desires to offer a form of healthy instruction to the flock of God. Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. As we prepare to close out our study this morning, I need one more volunteer to read. We're going to listen to John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 1 through 15. Who wants to read it? Come on, Dasha. John, chapter 13 verse 1 through 15 we're asking where is peter getting his language from we're trying to understand as modern students why does peter say clothe yourselves with humility listen to what dasha reads as she reads from john chapter 13 verse 1 through 15 now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then... He poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I, am doing to, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, 
The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Up to what? 15, please. 15, okay. When he had washed their feet and put on the outer, his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Thank you. Clothe yourselves with humility. In verse 4, it says that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Immediately after this, he speaks to who? The author of our letter. Peter's reaching back into his life's experience and he's saying, ah, I have seen the master. I have seen the master disrobe only to put on the garment of a slave, to get on his knees and to do the lowliest job in the first century, to wash the feet of what? Of his followers. Then, Peter, then John says, when he was finished, he stood up and then he put back on his outer garments. Jesus knows how to responsibly occupy his role in society. Jesus knows how to live by setting the example. Jesus knows what it means to take something off and to put something on. And Peter goes, my life experience. Clothe yourselves with all humility toward one another. Be like Jesus. Be like the God-man who took it upon himself to do the lowliest tasks. How many of us in our rooms are willing to raise our hands and say, with frequency in my life, I willingly embrace the lowliest tasks? The chief shepherd dressed himself as a slave to wash the feet of his disciples. Therefore, Peter's instructions are that the church must take a similar posture towards one another. This is not optional. This is not up for debate. Yes, please, please, please. Yeah. We need, as modern students, we need that shift. We need to put on our first century lenses. We need our goggles adjusted. Right? What lens are we reading through? Man, to wash someone's feet, I'll wash my wife's feet. Because it's no problem. She gets a pedicure every three months. Like, her toes look good. You know, she's got nice feet. I'll, I'll wash those. No, that's not what Peter's talking about here. Like, literally, cow feces. 
and donkey feces and sheep feces and blisters and sores and fungus and infection that's being managed with salve. He's not just splashing water on it. No gloves. No soap. No antibacterial. No detergent like the detergents that we have today. No mask. Yeah. Yeah. Remembered from every generation, right? Yep. Yep. We can search the scriptures all day, every day. The question is do we actually find life in them? That's the question. We can know this thing in and out, we can be able to quote this thing in and out. We can know where to flip and where to turn and where to read and where to point to prove the truth. The question is, does it inform our lives? And that's what Peter's after here. He's saying, clothe yourselves in the very same way the master clothed himself. And we just got finished saying it's not optional. Humility is mandatory for those of us who claim to be children of God. Peter undergirds his doctrine with the citation from the book of Proverbs. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This passage comes right out of the Old Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is saying that in the end, God will reject and destroy those who view themselves as powerful and self-sufficient. Why? Because God opposes the proud. However, those who are humble and submitted to God, they are the ones that He chooses to enrich with His spiritual gifts now, and they will be the ones who are exalted in the future when He crowns them with a crown that will be imperishable. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. Having taken the time to survey the text this morning, I'd like to circle back to our opening question. What's Peter's focus? Is it hierarchy? Is it church organization and structure? Or is it the character and the nature of all of those who play an active role in the fellowship of the saints? New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards writes that although Peter doesn't use the word humility until verse 5, it's fitting to say that verse 1 through 3 describe the brand of humble leadership, i.e. ethos, there's our word from the New Testament in its world, that Jesus both taught and embodied in his demonstrations through his life and through his ministry. Which is why I choose to argue that Peter is not after organizational structure. Because when we really choose to read the text in its context, he's after the heart of the leaders. Knowing that the heart of the leaders is going to give birth to how those under their leadership actually choose to live. Because that's going to be who they're watching. And he says, how are we setting the example, church? What's our heart's desire? Is our heart's desire to be in line with the life of Christ? Are we willing to clothe ourselves in humility? Or is that just a mantra that we repeat and then as soon as we're out the door, we're domineering? It's a hard word. If we just take a step back, can we ask the question, 
What's going to happen if the structures in place but those appointed to lead lack the necessary character? What's the point of the structure if those who are given the role to lead lack the character? Forget the structure of the organization. It goes out the window when people lack character. What's the point? We can put all of the pieces to the puzzle in play and say, well, here's our business plan. We've got a model to make the church function great. And then it's devoid of the spirit, but it's full of programs. We put people in leadership who lack gifts. Or they have gifts, and like Kendall says, they have gifts, but they display no good fruit. What's the point? <laughs> Our primary focus needs to be on the transformative work of the Spirit. Because God is not just in the business of rescuing and redeeming and reconciling. He's in the business of changing and transforming. And if we are distracted from what it is that God wants to do in us, we are hopeless. The church will be hopeless. We need to think very, very clearly about what it is that Peter is talking about in the text. And then we need to think, how does that apply to us? Because I'll tell you what, I'm looking at a room full of leaders, which means that everything we discuss today applies to all of you. I don't care if you consider yourself to be lower enlisted or a high-ranking officer. This applies to everyone in the room. It don't matter. Yeah, you are always a leader unto yourself. Yeah. I want us to dialogue in the near future, church, about the importance of organizational structure because it is important. But as we dialogue about it, I want us to make sure that we are filling the leadership slots with people who are qualified to lead. Because if we do not have qualified leaders, the structure will be meaningless. Amen? Let's bring the worship team up. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, as difficult as it was. I pray, God, that you would help me to be less domineering in my life. I ask, Lord, that you would change and transform my heart and my mind so that I can be a better servant to other people. I pray, Lord, that my example would light a fire in the hearts and the minds of all who are present, Lord, but not that I would see myself as greater than because, Lord, constantly remind me as you do that I can learn from them just as they learn from me. You have brought this body together for such a time as this, Lord. We are dependent on one another as we are dependent on your Spirit. So I pray, Father, that we would bear the burdens of the congregation well, that we would call out sin when it needs to be confronted, and that we would wholeheartedly speak from a foundation of love with hearts that are full of grace and mercy and patience, quick to forgive. Father, help us to institute leadership in this body 
that will be healthy for all who submit. And I pray, God, that the leadership would reflect your image and your heart and your desires for how your church is to be led so that when you return in your glory, we can expect a good reward from a good God. In Jesus' name, amen.